0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime lecture with Hervig Todds, who is the Conservator of Modern Art at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp. Hervig is a graduate in the History of Art and Archaeology from the University of Ghent which is where he also achieved his PhD in 2013. He was the Museum Guest Scholar at the Getty Research Institute in LA in 2015 and between 2013 and 2015 he was responsible for leading the Ensor Research Project at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp. In addition to organising exhibitions on 19th and 20th century art around the world, Hervig has written for many publications including a number on the artists of James Ensor who he will be discussing in today's talk. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Hervid Todds
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's truly an honor and a great pleasure to be here. As a Belgian curator and an ancestor scholar, I am really very happy to be involved in yet another exciting project. The Steinmans Ensor exhibition organized by the Royal Academy. And I'm also the one who writes Eclectic with a C too much, so uh, let's get rid of that. I only have one hour to help you understand a rather complex matter, which is the eclectic nature of James Ensor's art. So here we go try and identify the author of these drawings, paintings, etchings, and prints. Might that be Daumier or Eugène Delacroix, Gustave Courbet, David Teniers meeting Édouard Manet on one page, Rembrandt, Whistler, Claude Monet, Émile Nolde, Goya, the extraordinary diversity of Ensor's oeuvre is often overlooked. All the same, Eugène de Molder noted as early as 1892 that Enzo was not a specialist and tried his hands at all sorts of things. Dreamy seascapes, still lives, a series of elegant ladies, une série de femmes coquettes, and studies of a somewhat wild naturalism, des études d'un de naturalisme un peu sauvage. Not to mention the humorous subjects, the masks, crowd scenes, pure caricatures, and diablerie. The lawyer and author, Eugène de Mulder, was the son-in-law of Felicien and Maybe some of you have heard uh, about him, Felicien Rops. and de Mulder was a good friend of ANSOR's. Uh, he was the first to organize a solo exhibition on ANSOR in 1894, and de Mulder published a number of articles on ANSOR's art, including a brochure in 1892 that was the first in-depth study devoted to ANSOR's work. In 1929, almost 40 years later, the Palais des Beaux-Arts in Brussels, the most important Belgian institute for modern art in Belgium, was inaugurated with an exhibition of the work of an artist who at that moment was already considered to be the most important artist in Belgium after Rubens, Bruegel, or Jan van Eyck, and that was James Ensor. It was the largest exhibition ever to be organized on Ensor's work with 337 paintings, 325 drawings and 135 etchings. Among the many visitors was one of Ensor's oldest friends, August Vermeile, socialist intellectual, professor in the history of art and history of Dutch and Flemish literature at the University in Ghent. Ensor and Vermeulen met in 1819 in Brussels and became friends. Vermeulen knew the artist and his work undoubtedly pretty well. For decades he published Little or Not on Ensor, but in 1929 he was invited to give a speech at the banquet for the opening of the exhibition in the Palais de Beaux-Arts. And I quote the speech. This ought to be a very happy day for me as I am speaking about a thing I consider most important in life, and that is to say art, and about the artist whom I most like and admire among all those practicing today. And yet, rarely have I felt so unhappy. I have been in despair, in a hopeless state for the past fortnight. I thought I knew and so well enough, but when this exhibition opened, and his work could be seen in its entirety, it swiftly became clear that I would do better to hold my tongue. He has grown further in every direction than my words can do justice. I noticed during the opening, by the way, that anyone with even the slightest feeling for art was left with their head spinning as rapidly as mine. Bewildered and bamboozled they could articulate their admiration only with a quiet stutter or a hearty curse, a curse that in those circumstances circumstances had the quality of a prayer. It is true of course that we always take a somewhat one sided view of an artist's activity we tend to reduce it to its key elements, with the result that the diverse nature of their production is obscured. Public exhibitions gradually became the principal destination for artistic achievements from around the second half of the 18th century. Artists increasingly responded by embarking on an endless quest to differentiate themselves with the consequence that the diversity of artistic production has diminished sharply over the past 200 years. In Ernst's case, however, we can only observe that the diversity of his activity really was exceptional. To start with, there is the iconographical, stylistic and technical diversity already noted by De Mulder and August Vermeulen, but Ensor also published journalistic pieces, art critical satire, and speeches. He improvised and performed music, composing light hearted piano pieces, and he came up in 1911 with the ballet La Gamme d'Amour, complete with a scenario, costumes, sets, and music. It is understandable that all this made the despairing Vermeilen's head spin we might go so far as to call it postmodern capriciousness avant la lettre. Which brings us to a crucial question. Is it possible to search with success for a hidden consistency in Enzo's diverse production or would it be better simply to accept the eclectic, incoherent nature of his work? How did this quasi-postmodern Uh, capriciousness come about. Enzo's biography is regularly invoked as the only significant motivation for his surprising artistic journey. Enzo was the son of an English father and a Belgian mother and there you have his father and his mother is over there, that's his sister Mitch, and that's the grandmother and there at home in the most, the main room, the salon. Only in 1929 did the prospect of becoming a baron prompt answer to request naturalization, having previously shared the British nationality of his father, James Frederick answer The latter was a well-educated man from a prominent and wealthy family that spent a lot of time in Brussels and on the Belgian coast. James Frederick Ensor married the less socially elevated Katharina Hagemann uh, and settled in her native Ostend, where the couple ran a souvenir and curiosity shop and rented rooms in the summer to holiday makers. Rumor has it that Ensor's father never achieved a social position in keeping with his background and that he eventually became a drunkard and as a result, as a result held in contempt by his wife and her family and the laughing stock of the Ostend nightlife. Unlike ensor's mother, uh, his aunt and his sister, however, James ensor the elder, is believed to have been the only family member to recognize his son's talent and to provide unwavering support. Some biographers, therefore, consider 1887, the year in which ensor's father died, to be a crucial one in the development of ANSES art. But hard facts that would help us understand relations within the family are nevertheless scarce and contradictory, assuming they actually had a decisive impact on ANSES artistic choices in the first place. Enzo took lessons at a local drawing school in 1876, and he painted dozens of small nature studies throughout the spring and summer. From 1877 to 1880, he attended the Academy in Brussels, which at that time was considered more prestigious than the art schools in nearby Bruges, Ghent, or Antwerp, Antwerp being the soi-disant metropolis of commerce and the arts. ANSW's fellow students included Fernand Knopf, Theo van Resselberg, and another fellow Englishman by birth, Willy Finch. And other further mem- future members of the Exhibition Society, the Twenty Levin. While in Brussels, he met the poet and art critic Theo Hanon, who introduced Anso to the free-thinking circle of Ernest Rousseau, a professor at the Université Libre de, Bru- de Bruxelles, and his younger wife, Mariette Rousseau Hannon. The Rousseau's home was a meeting place for the artistic, literary, and scientific elite of the time, and the contacts Ensor made there stimulated his artistic and intellectual development. For many years now, the Contemporary Art Archive at the Musée Royal des Beaux-Arts de Belgique has been in possession of a collection of over 350 letters, which Ensor and his sister Mitch often on behalf of the family, sent to their close friends Ernest and Marie Rousseau between 1883 and 1924. This correspondence was kept under embargo until uh, 2014, with the content and even the existence of the letters remaining unknown. these letters are currently being prepared for publication, and based on my own brief knowledge of the letters, it is obvious that Ansel's biography will have to be partly rewritten. Following the death of his father in 1887, Ansel spent much of his time looking after his mother, his aunt Mimi, who lived with them, his by then divorced sister Mariette, or Mitch, and her daughter, Alexandrine. He was uh, simultaneously required to run the shop, the family's principal source of income. So to some extent, extent, Ansel remained a part-time artist throughout his life. In 1880, he installed a studio in the attic of his parental home in Ostend, where he occasionally worked with his friend Willie Finch. Although he continued to live in the town, Ostend, until his death, he spent a lot of time in Brussels too, where he took an active part in the artistic life of the capital and briefly even considered moving over there. Apart from occasional trips to London, the Netherlands and Paris, Anser rarely traveled. He made his debut in 1881 at the progressive uh, Brussels Art Association, La Chrysalide, and was swiftly acknowledged by both his admirers and detractors as one of its leading artists. The uh, conservative critic Gustave Lagea referred to Ensor mockingly as the Rubens of modernity, the leader of of our neo-painters. His seascapes, still lifes, naturalistic figure paintings and scenes from the life of the young modern bourgeoisie, including the famous uh, oyster eater, undoubtedly, and here she is, undoubtedly belonged to the still uh, inadequately appreciated masterpieces of European realism and plenarism. In 1883, Anser and a number of fellow former pupils of the Brussels Academy left the Artists' Association Les Sors, to found a new group, Les the 20. And they asked the lawyer, Octave Maus, editor of the prominent avant-garde journal, L'Art Moderne, to act as the group's secretary. Les Vingt organized 10 exhibitions between 1884 and 1893, which would play an important part in publicizing a series of international avant-garde movements. The members of Levin showed their work alongside invited artists from Belgium and abroad. So it, was that, so it was that the country made the acquaintance in rapid succession of the French Impressionists, the symbolism of Odilon Rodon, Paul Gauguin and Vincent van Gogh, and the neo-Impressionism of Georges Seurat. And which was taken up in, um, in Belgium immediately by Willy William Finch, Theo van Gijsselbergen, Henri van der Velde, Georges Morge, Georges and Georges Lemmen. And in fact, the painting by Van Gogh over there, The Red Vineyard, which is now at the Pushkin Museum in Moscow, was the only painting Van Gogh ever sold during his lifetime. It was bought. <laughs> by a Belgian artist and collector named Anna Boch. And Anna Boch was a friend of Ensor and a member of this Levin group. The Belgian art world was thoroughly modernized in the final decades of the 19th century, following uh, France's example. Art lovers, critics, and collectors had previously been obliged to wait for the large scale annual summer exhibitions in Brussels, Antwerp, or Ghent, to discover new artists and new artworks. These neutrally conceived yearly exhibitions continue to be held afterwards, but largely they lost their importance to this smaller, more exclusive exhibitions that were organized by artists' associations all over Europe. The foundation of the Société Libre des Beaux-Arts the Free Fine Arts Association in Brussels in 1868, was followed by the creation of a series of new artist societies in quick succession. Octave Maus founded La Libre Esthétique in 1893, an exhibition association run by Maus himself rather than by artists. Okay, and here you have, well, the main personalities... Uh, of the Belgian art world of the last decade of the 19th century in Brussels. Um, Portrait uh, in a satirical way by Ensor. There you have Octave Maus and he's preparing together with uh, Edmond Picard. Both were the chief editors of this um, journal L'Art Moderne. And they as cuisiniers dangereux, dangerous cooks are preparing a meal with the heads of famous artists, famous Belgian artists. You may recognize James Ensor over here. And then his friends, uh, Guillaume Vogels and other ones. And this is Anna Boch. This is the one who bought Van Gogh painting. And so they're preparing a meal to be served uh, to the most important art critics of the day, which are Camille Le Monnier, Emile Verrare, uh, Eugène de Molder, good friend of Ensor's, as was the well-known poet Emile Verhare, and two conservative critics, um, Sulzberger and Fetis. And there you have Ensor's uh, good friend Théo Hanon, running to the restrooms. Um, Ensor focused chiefly on drawing and etching between 1885 and 1888. And it was at this point that he developed a highly personal iconography and visual language, influenced by the likes of Rembrandt, Odilon Redon, Francisco Goya, Japanese woodcuts by Hokusai and Kono Barre, elements from Bruegel and contemporary cartoons. He rejected French Impressionism and was never fully convinced by symbolism. And so devoted himself to the expressive qualities of light, line, and color, and to grotesque and macabre motifs like carnival masks and skeletons, which he incorporated in crowd scenes such as those in the series Les Auréoles du Christ, Christ, uh, the Auréoles of Christ, or the Sensibilities of Light. And one of the big drawings from this series is over there. And this is, of course, the well-known, most monumental mask scene now at the Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, which is Christ's entry into Brussels in 1889. So when he painted this um, large canvas, he was 28, 29 years old. So what about love affairs by that day? Scholars have speculated at length in recent decades about Ensor's relationships with women. The artist's mother and aunt are assumed to have had a bad influence, while Mitch, his sister, was seen as a frivolous character. His grandmother was supposedly an unconventional model for his grotesque personage, And Mariette Rousseau, the wife of the professor uh, of the university in Brussels, was Anse's unattainable love. Hard evidence to support these suppositions uh, is once again lacking. We are not much better informed about Ensor's relationship with Augusta Bogarts neither. He supposedly met uh, Augusta Bogarts around 1888, and they went on to share a lifelong relationship without ever actually living together. Ensor would call her La Sirene, the mermaid. Answer so struggled in vain in 1893 to prevent the dissolution of Levin when the group's secretary, Octave Mauss, founded the exhibition society La Libre Esthétique, which regularly issued invitations to Answer. In the same year, the print room of the Bibliothèque Royale de Belgique in Brussels purchased a large number of etchings. The Kupferstich cabinet in Dresden followed a year later, as did the Albertina in Vienna in 1899. The rumor claiming that Anser unsuccessfully offered the entire contents of his studio for sale in 1893 for the sum of 8,500 Belgian francs has never been documented and, given his growing commercial success, seems unlikely. In 1895, Ensor successfully lobbied the interior minister to purchase the Lamp Boy, which is this painting, for the Musée de l'État, now the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Brussels. The asking price was 2,500 francs. In 1897, he persuaded Ostend City Council to buy another painting for the Municipal Museum. And his hometown paid 2,000 francs for a sick tramp trying to warm himself, another early painting. Ensor also began to take a more active active part in the artistic life of Ostend, where he founded and became chairman of the Cercle des Beaux-Arts. Ensor's artistic innovation by that time came to the attention of German artists such as um, German artists and critics like Alfred Kubin, and you have a drawing by Kubin over there, Um, Paul Klee, and there's an etching by Paul Klee, an early etching over there. Then you have masks by Emil Nolde, and you have a street scene that might... mind you, of the entry of Christ into Brussels by Georg Gros. Um, all these figures understood that Le peintre des Masques, the painter of masks, had broken radically with traditional Western European artistic values and practices. and so began to focus increasingly on his writing from 1896 onwards, chiefly publishing articles on art in the left-wing magazines Le Coq Rouge, the Red Rooster, and La Ligue Artistique. He also found himself in increasing demand as a public speaker, and he seized this opportunity to pillory modern architecture, vivisection, and the parceling out of the dunes for building. In many of, the spe- of these speeches, Enzo described himself as a precursor of Luminism, Fauvism, Cubism, Expressionism, Futurism, and Surrealism. He also placed a great deal of importance on his own musical achievements. In in 1911, as I told you before, he wrote the libretto and composed the music for a ballet entitled La Gamme d'Amour, for which he also designed the sets and costumes. Although he hoped that uh, Diaghilev would uh, set it on stage in Paris with the Ballet Russe, it was only staged at the Antwerp Opera House in 1924. In 1917 Ensor had already moved to the house that he had inherited from his uncle in the Vlaanderenstraat and today you will find there the James Ensor Museum, the Ensor House. Ensor painted a view of his studio in 1896, in which a skeleton stand at an artist's easel with palettes and paintbrush at the ready. This skeleton painter, is based on a virtually identical photograph in which Ensor, sitting on a tonne chair rather than standing, poses in the studio in the attic of his parental home. The painting is a fairly faithful copy of the photograph, and it is possible to identify almost all the pictures that Ensor reproduced in it. Although the photograph is in black and white, we know that the colors of the various elements of the composition, the objects, the paintings, the frames, and so forth, are true to life. One of the reproduced works was altered in the skeleton painters with the artist's face substitute for a skull. Infrared analysis has uncovered drawing underdrawing for the panel, in which he initially followed the photograph very closely, carefully copying uh, his own facial features. Now, um, with the Anser research project, we have demonstrated, however, that Anser made the decision to turn his head into a skull uh, at the very moment he began to apply the oil paint. It is very tempting, of course, to See images like the skeleton painters and the etching, drawings, and paintings in which Ensor includes himself as expressions of a tormented psyche, um, with alternative readings rarely, if ever, presented. It is apparent from his letters and articles, however, that Ensor was aware of the power of the media and of the public's desire to glimpse the man behind the man behind the art. Episodes from artists' lives he wrote are fascinating. Um, He wrote this to a friend whom he encouraged to pen a romantic image of him for a special issue of the French magazine La Plume, which was completely dedicated to Ensor and his art. The studio photograph answer used as the basis for the skeleton painter is one of an extensive series of photographic portraits of the kind that were frequently taken in the late 19th century to illustrate art magazines. Further research will will be needed before we can determine whether the skeleton painter should be read as the self-expression of a tortured soul, soul or as the visual calling card of an artist keen to be viewed as a grotesque joker. And here you have him as a grotesque joker with his young friend Ernest Rousseau um, Jr. acting in some kind of photo novel in the Belgian dunes uh, at the coast. The Antwerp art critic André de Ridder was working on a thorough study of Anser's life and work in 1928, prompting him to bombard the artist with questions. Anser responded graciously in a number of letters, but still thought it worthwhile, reminding the critic the reader of a book that they had published together several years earlier. I advise you, Anser wrote, to reread the Écrit de James Anser, Edition, Sédiction, 1921, in which I explain my investigations and in which I defend my ideas. Enzo's writing can be broken down roughly into his correspondence to and these écrits, these writings. Journalistic work, satirical exhibition reviews, humorous speeches, expressions of gratitude and tributes, and open letters published in magazines and brochures. I have been studying these writings systematically, which by no means is an easy task. Ensor, as a writer, showed little concern for structure. Um, He nevertheless had firm literary ambitions, as witnessed by his elaborate, humorous use of self-coined words. It's often slam poetry avant la lettre. Archaisms, neologisms, astonishing tyrants, hippobole, and other idiosyncrasies make it far from straightforward to tease out his philosophical, social, and artistic views from these writings. Even though the information he divulges in them is limited, Ensor's texts and letters are an undeniable, useful source from which to gain an insight into his views and attitudes. Ensor's unfulfilled longing for bliss, the greatest good, is crucial to a clear understanding of his vision of the world, human beings and art. The bliss for which Ansel longed is of the grandiose, intangible order, which he sketched in ironic and highly specific hyperbole. What a wonderful phosphorescent dream to end in beauty, tenderly embraced by a passionate octopus, lying between the cultivated muscles of Ostend and mermaids. I will offer myself up to the avid kisses of the lovely beasts of the waters, of the sky, the earth and the sea. And here is how he expressed his aesthetic preferences regarding color. Lady Color, my great friend, beckons me. Yes, madam, color is the sweetheart of the true painter. It explains all my artistic developments, my ever-changing ways of painting. At the time it was said, answers changes of style as of shirt. I set my, color, my colors together on a clear day. Free for all, a proud gaze, levied hand, the palette loaded, the paint tubes cracked open, brush in attack. Ladies, poorly placed colors will fight each other to the limits, such as awkward, awful neighbors. Miss Vermilion looks at the dark side in the face of Mrs. Whitelet. Miss Chinese Lacquer Whale grows purple of anger at Miss, Mr. Distress blue. The greens go tipsy and feel blue for being turned down. Saturated by the British purpose, I show the tones I like. Followed at my heels by my own copycats, I have retreated to that lonely land of mockery where the mask rules, one and all of violence, light, intensity, and spectacle. To me, the mask is freshness of tone, lush decor, white, unexpected gestures, super sharp expressions, outstanding turbulence. Long live color, it is the ornament of our spiritual wedding. As to spiritual weddings, some critics and scholars have wrongly sought to label answer as a devout Christian. His writings actually reveal an attitude towards Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church that is, for the most part, amused and occasionally scathing. It is safe to conclude from them that Anser was an atheist. Yet he was no more an adherent of 19th century positivism than he was of religion. Nor was he a believer in heaven on earth. Religion and science were to him cruel goddesses drenched in tears and blood. and so believed that we have to allow, allow ourselves to be led by emotion, for better or worse, if we are to discover the fundamental depth of things and determine what is truly worthwhile. The artist grew up in a period of frequent, intense political differences in Belgium. Catholics and liberals fought over the nation's education system during the so-called schools conflict. The first Belgian Socialist Party was founded. There were episodes of social unrest and repression, and the Flemish movement arose to defend the interests of Dutch speakers in the northern part of the country. Enzo's friends included free thinkers, progressive liberals, socialists, and Flemish nationalists, Among them, significant figures like Edmond Picard, Eugène de Mulder, and Auguste Vermeil. All the same, the artist who became a member of the Ostend Rotary Club in 1927 was circumspect in his approach to political issues. He mocked the country's various activist tribes while looking on with sympathy and amused curiosity at the revival of the old exotic language of the Flemings a language he himself wrote very badly and spoke with a pronounced Ostend accent. At the same time, however, he did not wish the revival of Flemish culture to undermine relations between Belgians as a whole, be they Walloons or Dutch or French-speaking Flemings. Enzo was not a vegetarian, but he was nevertheless revolted by the cruelty with which animals were treated. He mobilized his friends and acquaintances and called with varying success for the preservation of the little church at Maria Kerke, the historic tower of the Church of Saints Peter and Paul in Ostend, the old docks in the same town, and the dunes. And in despair he cried more than once, Oh, beautiful modernity, what crimes are committed in your name? At an artistic level, Ensor defended four fundamental ideas. Firstly, that art must be a source of exaltation, a route to bliss for the viewer and the creator. Secondly, that truth in nature is not the only form that visual art must practice, but it is the most important. Thirdly, that innovation is a goal to be pursued in its own right, and lastly, that the desired artistic innovation and exaltation should be achieved through the exploration of varying styles, subjects, or genres. So he was eclectic on purpose. As an artist, Anso believed he had no choice but to orientate himself towards a community of like-minded people. He considered the notion that artworks ought to have a social function to be downright insulting. Nothing was worse than banality, which was a shameful artistic act comparable with cruelty to animals and a mindless destruction of nature or monuments. The banal was to be countered with the qualities he appreciated in Richard Wagner and to some extent in Antoine Weir's too, a grandiose, even swaggering, swaggering vision, passion and poetry. All the same, the evocation by less talented artists of the intangible beauty of the unspoiled dunes could mean almost as much in this respect as the depiction of stupidity in the work of Bos, Bruegel, or Goya. Enzo was opposed to the classical ideal of beauty and to old-fashioned artistic conventions. He did not believe in objective truth or the hierarchy of genres. Faithfulness to nature nevertheless remained a decisive criterion for, to him for the creation and appreciation of artworks. When Enzo used the term vision in 1882, he chiefly meant a way of seeing, a way of observation, a way of representing reality and he continued to believe in his old age that the best paintings were made with one eye on the model and the other on the colors on the palette. But truth to nature was not enough. Anser was an outspoken champion of what Antoine Compagnon termed the prestige of the new. It would be no exaggeration in fact to say that he was obsessed with it. Analysis of Ensor's writing by, writings by contrast suggests that he remained impervious to the ideals of orthodox modernism. And when he discussed cubism, expressionism, futurism, or surrealism, it is clear that he actually had little idea of what he was talking about. The method Ensor championed for creating images that were both new and exalting was to explore a variety of manières, styles, subjects, techniques, and genres. Consequently, the distinction that David Galenson draws in his book Young geniuses and old masters, the two life cycles of artistic creativity between conceptual innovation on the one hand and an empirical way of promoting artistic renewal on the other hand, is very helpful in achieving a better understanding of Enser's creative process. In my view, Enser was an excellent example, not only in theory, but also in practice of a conceptual artistic innovator. How does such an innovator set about his or her work? Answer: generally took an external stimulus as his starting point. He borrowed an artistic approach from from contemporaries or historical predecessors, or he even revisited one of his own inventions. The first step was to radicalize this existing element for which Enzo's primary mode was that of the exaggeration. He then explored the different possibilities offered by a particular artistic project, though not by continuing to search empirically for the right or the best visual representation. Instead, Enzo developed a a specific stylistic iconographical or technical approach and then produced a whole range of possibilities almost systematically. He never felt hindered by convention and so, as has been noticed again and again, he frequently took previously untrodden paths. Enzo temporarily explored the possibility of a specific approach But when he felt that its potential had been exhausted, he refrained from any further attempts and concluded the series of this group of works. The skeleton painter is, of course, a good example of the relative simplicity of Ensor's innovative method, which he applied in a similar way in another photograph taking during a trip in 1888 with his sister, Mitch. And she's over there with Ernest and Mariette Rousseau, with Professor Antoine Roti and Willie Finch. And this photograph became the basis for the drawing Pest Dessus, Pest Dessous, Pest Partout, Hell Above, Hell Below, Hell Everywhere. Um, as you can see. So here you have, again, Mariette Rousseau in the same position. You have Willie Finch, and he comes from that portrait. His sister over there, and then he placed Rousseau over there. Okay, the drawing uh, corner of a stove and grotesque figures was produced in two stages. At the Antwerp Museum, we discovered that between 1886 and 1889, Enser took 15 unfinished realistic studies of elements in an interior or the street, and then he started adding all sorts of bizarre motifs to these drawings. One of these series of hybrid creations comprises the corner of a stove with grotesque figures. The creative process Answer applied in these drawings is entirely innovative and shows even certain similarities with was later to be called le cadavre exquis of the surrealists. So during a preliminary stage possibly between 1880 and 82 when he was still very young just left the academy Ansaur drew a study of the kitchen stove including the small saucepan, um, a waffle iron in the upper right corner of a sketchbook sheet. He sought to use contrasts and gradations of light and shade to represent the volume, the form, and the position of these objects. And then several years later, he filled the remainder of of the sheet, which is photoshopped a little bit over here, okay. And then he filled the remainder of the sheet with these um, grotesque heads. The caricatured linear design of these heads differs stylistically from the object's answer had previously drawn. And this contrast creates a surprising effect and the heads seem moreover to pop up haphazardly around the stove. At first sight, therefore, the new composition seems, an, seems unrealistic and absurd. The result of a creative process in which chance and free association are of decisive importance. But if we study the drawing for a little longer, however, we notice a hand reaching for the saucepan. So we notice this hand reaching for the saucepan, which uh, seemingly belongs to one of the greatest figures. It appears that the artist wanted, after all, to achieve a more or less rational coherence in terms of the content of the drawing. We are not surprised that this substantive coherence should hitherto have escaped the notice of most ANCES scholars, since uh, the drawing has been known for over 50 years by the title Fireplace uh, and Masks even though it clearly shows the corner of a stove and grotes figures. The Man of Sorrows came about in a similar manner, with Ensor combining a demon mask from Japanese no-theater, one like that, not this one, but one similar to this one, with the crown of thorns and blood from a late Gothic image of the tormented and mocked Christ. And this example of a Man of Sorrows by Albrecht Bautz, which is in the Antwerp Royal Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, We know that Enzo had a postcard with uh, the reproduction of this um, Bouts Man of Sorrows. So, um, basically, um, the game he plays is the game of combination and exaggeration. More surprisingly, Anser also applied the similar, a similar method to his studies of nature. An example is his, his discovery of the extremely straightforward sea views of his older colleague Guillaume Vogels. And the painting over there is by Vogels. And the way Vogels used a palette knife to create them. And so decided to outdo Vogels and to produce a series of very informal paintings that are a virtuoso demonstration of how to work with a palette knife. And the Oyster Eater is a similarly uh, ambitious example, um, belonging to what the Mulder called a series of elegant ladies, a genre in which another Belgian painter Alfred Steves excelled. Ensor discovered Redon's symbolism in 1885 or 86, inspiring him to take a radically new artistic direction. Following Redon's example, he began to work in black and white to depict. Uh, ethereal subjects to develop light and shade into an instrument of mystification and even to give his works a new kind of title. The series The Orioles of Christ or the Sensibilities of Lights, Visions, is the ultimate brilliant example. The Orioles do not immediately recall Redon's example, however, as they are so overwhelmingly Rembrandtesque in conception. Rembrandt was not only the hero of progressive 19th century realist painters, he was also regarded as a shining example by the symbolists. Art historical models play a surprisingly large role in Enser's work. Though it is not always clear whether we should view his works, such as the Aureoles uh, of Christ or the Man of Sorrows, as uh, homages to those models or parodies of them. And the intrigue is an unexpected and indeed intriguing example of this. Infrared and X-ray images analyzed by the ANSER research project once again show ANSWER getting down to work with little hesitation or exploration. It was an assured approach that grew logically from its preference for conceptual innovations. Starting from an existing model, that then went underwent a radical uh, transformation. And so, depicted masks, creatures in half-length compositions on a number of occasions. The earliest example is Mask Confronting Death in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and that painting is from 1888. Although that is more a, a portrait uh, of a group of busts of mask creatures. What the artist has done here is um, to arrange carnival masks, fabrics, and garments in a still life, which then seems to come um, alive, as it were, in a mysterious and disturbing way. The figures in the intrigue are shown half-length, and the composition was preceded by an interesting etching (laughs) also from uh, 1888 entitled rendered entitled render unto caesar we know how this composition came about as all the figures were borrowed from the work of michelangelo and so copied them from a magazine with michelangelo reproductions so was he mocking the slavish academic devotion to the old master masters or is it a homage Homage to Michelangelo. Either way, the meaning of the well-known episode from the New Testament is transformed in Enzo's etching. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees ask Jesus the loaded question of whether or not it was permissible to pay taxes to the Roman emperor. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, in Ansel's etching, the coin is handed to Jesus by an old man in rags, and here we have the old man wearing a ludicrous top hat and accompanied by a boy, a duo more reminiscent of the poverty stricken main characters of Hector Malo's miserablest novel, Sans Famille, than of prominent Jewish, Jewish theologians. The element of hypocrisy appears to have shifted in this print given the poor taste of telling a beggar that he should attach less importance to material things the figures are borrowed from michelangelo but the way they are arranged clearly recalls the composition by rubens inverted of course in enzo's etching in which another form of hypocrisy is attacked christ and the woman christ and the, a woman taken in adultery and There you have the painting by Rubens, and there you have the print that Enzo might have known. Here, too, Christ is shown confronting the Pharisees, who now ask him whether the woman caught committing adultery should be stoned to death as required by the laws of Moses. And Christ answers, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It is hard to tell whether Anson knew Rubens' paintings, which was actually only acquired by the Musée Royal des Beaux-Arts in Brussels in 1899, or if he had seen a copy of the modern engraving made after the painting. But whatever the case, there are several striking similarities between render unto Caesar the intrigue and Christ and the woman taken in adultery. The drama in Rubens' paintings is always, um, ex- always expressed emphatically by the poses, gestures, and f- facial expressions of the depicted figures. And the position, poses, and gestures of the characters in the three scenes are surprisingly similar. But the pronounced facial expressions in Rubens' composition are also echoed in the grimaces of Ensor's mask creatures. It is no longer the woman, however, who is beset in Anser's composition. The hilarity of the other masked grotesques is directed against man, whose facial expressions remains unfathomable. Ensor's Answer, intrigue is, as T.G. Clark recently uh, remarked, an image that convinces us that horror and absurdity may very well be quite familiar events. Libby Tannenbaum claimed in 1951 that the painting, the intrigue, referred to the marriage of Enzo's sister, uh, Mieche, to the the Anglo-Chinese businessman, Tan He Tzu. Yet, if that were the case, precisely what is Enzo depicting here? His sister's glee at landing the husband who would leave her immediately after the birth of their daughter Alexandrine. The painting dates from 1890, while the wedding did not take place until 1892, with Alexandrine born in 1893. So, to conclude my talk, perhaps it is time to stop looking for autobiographical clues to the interpretation of Ansel's art, and to focus instead on exploring his experimental attitude, his conceptual method, and the plurality of his artistic projects. Thank you.